Welcome to episode 103 of the Robot Report podcast. My name is Steve Crow. I'm the editorial director of the Robot Report. Thanks, as always, folks, for tuning in to the show, uh, our first show of 2023. So happy new year to everybody out there. Joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Mr. Mike Oitzman, editor of our robotics group, also the founder of the Mobile Robot Guide. Happy New Year, sir. Do you remember how to do this? Yeah, Steve, it's been a while. It's actually my my voice is back. It's, it's been a little bit rested, I guess you might say. And uh, you know, it's it's been an interesting, uh, I'd say, a month since we've uh, last put one of these together. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks, folks, for uh, for hanging tight and uh, bearing with us. Uh, a lot going on. Uh, a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, obviously, we'll talk about some of the things that have happened in the news in the last week or so. Mike also was at CES, so we're going to talk about uh, what Mike saw and experienced at CES. We have a couple interviews, which Mike recorded live from the show floor there with some of the cooler robots he came across at the show. So we'll weave those in and out of our conversation. Uh, But we do also have to mention uh, registration is now open for our Robotics Summit and Expo and Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum events. They're co-located together May 10th and 11th in Boston. So you can buy your tickets now. Uh, you can do that by going to roboticsummit.com. Super excited about this event. This is our flagship event. This will be the fourth year that we've done this event. We got some great keynote speakers lined up right now. Mark Raybert, founder of Boston Dynamics, of course. He's now at the AI Institute. Uh, we're going to be doing a fireside chat with Mark to learn about what it is that they're trying to tackle. What are some of the technical challenges they hope to come overcome at the AI Institute. We're going to hear from Martin Bueller, probably one of the most well-known successful uh, roboticists that I've ever come across. He's currently the global head of robotics R&D at a little medical company called Johnson & Johnson. Maybe folks have heard of them. Uh, Howie Chosit, professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon. Laura Major, she's the CTO of Motional, which is developing autonomous vehicles. You'll also hear from Nick Radford. I think he was episode 100, right, Mike? Um, He'll be talking about developing robots for the final frontiers. He's right now the CEO and founder of Nauticus Robotics, which is building robotic systems for underwater applications. But in a previous uh, job, he was developing space robots at NASA. So some amazing, amazing industry leaders who will be in Boston May 10th and 11th to inspire everyone share what they've learned throughout their uh, remarkable careers and networking with everybody. Also confirming a bunch of other speakers that we'll have in the breakout tracks, two separate conference tracks dedicated to those who are developing different types of healthcare robotics for our healthcare robotics engineering forum. So again, we have the first sort of uh, crew of speakers that we've released and introduced up on the website right now. You'll see a lot more coming in the next few weeks, we also have uh, the, the show floor plan up there. We'll have over 120 exhibitors on the show floor. So, Mike, a lot of cool stuff happening, needless to say. Yeah, it's going to be another exciting event this year as we uh, get together in the great city of Boston. And uh, again, looking for the, the additional cooperation with our friends at, at Mass Robotics. And there's going to be a career fair uh, there as well. So, again, if you're looking for a job or your next your next opportunity uh, it'll be a great place to network and 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 talk to folks who are doing amazing things in robotics 
Yeah. Also, one quick thing before we do get to the news, uh, we have closed now the nominations for the RBR 50 Robotics Innovation Awards. Again, a record number of entries. We've had a, a, a boatload of people who have reached out to us about reopening the submission form because they missed the deadline. Um, you know, we're not going to be reopening it, unfortunately. But uh, now we're knee deep in that, too, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> Try, uh, this is always a monumental task. Uh, trying to figure out what are the 50 best robotics innovations from the year. But uh, that's well underway, too. So if you submitted, thank you for submitting your entry into the RBR 50 Robotics Innovation Awards. We'll be in touch with those with the winners soon. Uh, um, so you'll you'll find out if you want an award probably in the next month or so. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff going on. A lot of stuff happened this week, Mike in the news and you we have you folks covered with our network of robotics sites you can check us out at the robot report mobile robot guide robotics business review and collaborative robotics trends i think this was the story of the week mike certainly in the robotics industry uh boston dynamics releasing a new video of the atlas humanoid uh, why don't you take us through this video, your thoughts on it. But once again, they kind of took the Internet by storm when they released the video, which is typical, typically what happens when they release new capabilities for really any of their robots. But I thought this one was particularly interesting. Well, I think there's a lot of interesting things that they demonstrated in this video. And it was about taking Atlas to, you know, pushing its limits in terms of what it's able to do, what it's able to perceive. Uh, we see the robot pick up a variety of things, a tool, a tool, uh, first of all, a piece of wood that it lays down to to walk across. And then we see it pick up a tool um, box or bag and actually carry that. So, you know, it has to adjust its center of mass while it's walking and and, and then it, uh, it climbs up um, a, a bunch of uh Things and throws the tool bag to to the uh, construction worker at the top of of all of that, and so you know just again continuing to to learn and to evolve and to and to grow the capabilities of Atlas. I mean, again, it's, it's not a product. Atlas, they've always said, is a is a demonstration platform, a place for them to continue to grow their their capabilities, their technologies. Um, and I think the interesting thing at the at the end of it is that it it does a new type of uh, gymnastics instead of just doing the standard backwards flip, which we've seen Atlas do many times over the last I don't know five years. Um, it, yeah. it it does sort of this rolling flip with a multi-axis sort of rotation and lands on its feet. I'd love to see the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there I would encourage everyone if you haven't seen this video, it's incredible. Okay. Um, they also released a behind the scenes video and yep. they really get into how they were able to pull all this stuff off. So there's some comments again, check it out at the robotreport.com. It's on YouTube. It's in a million different places where you can find it, but you know, which, what is typical commentary when Boston dynamics releases these videos is that's not real, right? That's gotta be CGI. And I would agree. Like it doesn't look real. A lot of the movements that Atlas is making, especially where it throws the bag onto the top level of the scaffold to the, you know, quote unquote construction worker. It doesn't look real the way that it moves. It just does not look like it's real. And I always think about some of the other humanoid robots that I've come across covering this industry for the last decade. And again, obviously nothing comes even close to what Atlas is able to do. I don't think anybody's really tried to 
do what Atlas does. But there's also that spinning flip at the end that doesn't look real. But if you watch the behind the scenes video that Boston Dynamics has done, they really explain how hard it is. And there are outtakes and bloopers and it falling down and they they couldn't figure out. Uh, I think one of the there was a problem with one of the joints in one of its arms at right. one point in time. So they're in full disclosure of, you know, we break these things all the time. Mistakes happen. And that's the fun of it for them. Right. Is, is trying to diagnose these problems and push the robot to the limit. But to, to piggyback off your point at the start of your commentary is this is a research platform and they get into a lot of the improvements that they had to do in order to make this new routine possible. So mm-hmm. again, watch the video where they explain how they improved the control systems to enable this 180 degree jump while holding a wooden plank. They talk about the model predictive controller. There's a lot of simulation videos that they're showing you as they're trying to put this routine together. Um, You know, the inverted 540 degree flip at the end, they have a nickname for that move internally. And and I forget what it is at the moment, but it's just an incredible, though the sick trick, I think is what they called it. Right. And it's just amazing. But again, it doesn't look real, but as you and I know, we got, we were lucky enough to have a private tour of and demo of Atlas last year, which I'll never, never forget. But it's it's just incredible. This is not the first time that Atlas has been in a video with robotic grippers on the end of its arms. I, I think the first time that they did that that I remember is the Super Bowl commercial last right. year yep. where it held the keg above its head. What was it your cousin from Boston? I think was the name of the commercial where the yeah. security guards were dancing with Atlas after hours at the Boston Dynamics headquarters. But that is sort of a new concept of, you know, yes, Atlas can perceive its environment and is very athletic, but being able to manipulate things in the world and find that tool bag on its own and pick it up. And it's just, I don't know what else to say. It's its just remarkable. So, you know, this is one of the reasons we want Mark Raybert and other folks from Boston Dynamics to speak at our events is there is no one else in the history of robotics who has done anything remotely close to this. And we should learn about why they're doing this or how they're doing this or what's next, right? What are some of the challenges the AI Institute where Mark now is leading? What is he looking to overcome? Look what you've done now with Atlas. Look how far it's come. But how do you take it even further? And that's why I'm excited to hear from Mark in a few months here. Yeah, I, th- I think the, what they show in that behind the scenes video is the importance of simulation, how they, you know, they program it and run everything in simulation. It, it, you know, it has full physics uh, generation. So they they know, you know, what how the robot's going to respond, how it has to balance after it lands or when it picks up something heavy that throws its center of, of gravity off, how the robot has to compensate so it can still walk. Um, and and make its way through all that uh, the bag throwing they did that in simulation first, and then you know you see it in real life. You know it's very close to how uh, the simulation uh, showed it was going to happen. And I think those are the types of tools, and that's the type of innovation that's going to help push uh, us forward in robotics that much faster. Because then that can be applied to every other situation, whether we're we're talking about factory automation or whether we're talking agriculture or other types of applications, the ability for us to have simulation tools that match the real world as close as possible means that the, you know, the roboticists can do, can develop quicker, 
when things uh, crash in simulation, it doesn't take, you know, three days to, to remanufacture a part or print a part or figure out why it broke and get it working again before you can rerun, you know, a segment of code. Yeah, Open Robotics, I think today actually posted on LinkedIn some screenshots from that behind the scenes video of the simulation platform mm -hmm. saying, quote, does I think that, you know, this looks familiar or, or something like something to that effect is what they said. So are they yeah. using Gazebo or some sort of ROS based simulator uh, to make that happen? If so, that's that's even more incredible. Uh, but do you ever, you know, I know you you coach your first robotics team. Do you ever tell them about this or talk about these types of videos with these kids? Well, it's funny because we just came back from a tournament a, a week ago, and you know, it, it's it's fun. It's not fun, but it's fun as as a mentor to watch those stressful situations where the kids are trying to troubleshoot what's wrong with the robot. You're trying to lead them to figure it out without giving them the answer necessarily. Uh, and it's the same thing was true here. They they give some real uh, open uh, video of the technicians, the electrical technician and the mechanical technician, you know, trying to figure out uh, what what happened uh, in Atlas and, and what the problem was and, you know, how to get it back uh, on its feet, literally, uh, once again. And uh, I showed this video to the kids and I haven't got the reactions yet because I just I just put it in our Slack channel. This is what a real life roboticist does. These are the types of careers that you have in front of you. And this is why, you know, what we're doing uh, in STEM-based programs like FIRST to help you be prepared for a career or even figure out that there's a career that where these skills are important. Yeah. And I, I try anytime they release a video, I try to show, especially my older daughter, she's nine, um, just to show them this thing and try to inspire. Not inspire them, but just, you know, there is that fear that a lot of people exist. So I'm trying to do my little part too, you know? So <laughs> I showed all my, my girls, nine, five, and two, the video and, and the behind the scenes video uh, a couple of nights ago. And all they did was laugh. Like any, any time Atlas fell down, they just yeah. thought it was like the funniest <laughs> thing. So it's, it's just cool to see other people's reactions to this stuff. So uh, very cool stuff. So kudos to Boston Dynamics. Uh, keep these videos coming because Everybody loves to see them. So we appreciate the behind the scenes look too. Uh, we were going to talk a little bit about chat GPT. Uh, we've had some fun with that over the last couple of days, but we're going to hold off on that. Maybe the next couple of weeks, um, we've been experimenting with it um, and we want to learn a little bit more about how it works. But if you guys are experimenting with chat GPT at all uh, in any sort of content creation, uh, Mike and I and Brianna, we'd like to hear from you, um, see what you think of it. So just send us a note. Uh, if you guys have had any experiments with it, uh, uh, good ones, bad ones, um, let us know. Uh, the other big story of the week, not really just this week, Mike, but some more layoffs, certainly some high tech companies, uh, Microsoft, I think Google came out today and announced they laid off like 12,000 people. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. So a, a lot of bad things happening out there to uh, some high tech companies, but also some prominent robotics companies have been affected by this as well. Uh, Amazon Robotics based where I'm at in Massachusetts, they laid off a bunch of people, including quote, the OG Kiva team, as I was told. Um, mm -hmm. Some, a bunch of people have posted about it publicly on LinkedIn at this point in time. I think you, you, you saw something about Amazon. They're also laying off some primary delivery folks. Uh, Intrinsic recently laid off about 40 people or 20% of its staff, which is, Somewhat confusing since they just acquired recently the open source robotics group. Um, yep. I am robotics, an AMR developer down in Pittsburgh, uh, according to its uh, uh, 
founder or co-founder Tom Beluzzo laid off a number of people yesterday. Um, so they, if you remember years ago, started, uh, came out with a mobile manipulator. It was one of the earlier yep. mobile manipulation systems that was commercially available. I remember a demo that they did at Robo Business years ago, and it worked tremendously well. But they laid off a number of people. Uh, certainly, we documented some other layoffs last year. These certainly won't be the last robotics companies that lay people off here uh, early in 2023. But just you've been in this business for a long time. I think you've unfortunately been at companies when things like this have happened. I think maybe I'm wrong. Um, just overall thoughts from you on the layoffs. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, look, I've been in high tech for the majority of my career uh, working out of the Silicon Valley. You know, it's always been something a part of this industry and ebb, ebb and flow of business is as uh, profits and losses happen. Um, companies get over their skis and they have too many people and, and need to make ends meet. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's just sort of that implicit if you're in this industry, you, you understand that's one of the risks. Um, and I, you know, I've always tried to financially plan for that. My, my, my personal take is just making sure I always had enough in the savings account to last, you know, uh, several months um, to pay the bills, right. Even at a minimum, um, you know, when I was Steve, I was fortunate enough to survive every layoff in my career up until I was working at Hewlett Packard, about uh, 10 years ago. Um, and there, I mean, I've told this story to lots of my, my friends. I, I, I got to see, uh, layoffs from three, three different sides, you know, as a manager. And this was, this was interesting because, uh, um, I was on a plane, I got off the plane and, and I had, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so information from my boss that we we need to delay off some uh, some folks on the team. So I took care of that, and then you know a couple hours later, you know he called me and said you're you're gone too. Oh my! So he had you do the dirty work. Yeah. So so oh, literally, geez. I had to I had to slaughter my employees before I was led to the firing line. That was pretty brutal. But but then you know HP does have a very liberal sort of tra- internal hiring process. So, you know, um, within two weeks, I was rehired internally at HP in another role in another division of the company and continued my career there. Um, you know, they covered you financially, you know, across that time frame while you were looking for another job. So that was fortunate. But, uh, you know, look, they're never fun. And again, my advice to, to anybody working in high tech is that, you know, to always be prepared. I've told my kids this, you know, create a buffer, make sure you've got three to six months worth of living expenses in your savings account before you spend it on anything else. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if there's a silver lining to this, that's probably not the right phrase, but um, the, one of the good things about working in the robotics industry is that it is very close, right? Yep. Everybody yep. seems to know everybody. Um, and, you know, some of these folks, for example, who lost their jobs at Amazon robotics, I'm sure their skill sets are in high demand yep. and, in the moment, I've thankfully I've never dealt with this, but I'm sure their their skills are in high demand in other places, and they probably won't be on the open market for long. But if you're on LinkedIn channels, you know, poke around. You're you know, if you were unfortunately affected by one of the layoffs that we just talked about, or one that we didn't talk about, you're not alone. There's a lot of other people who are unfortunately in the same boat right now. But there's also a lot of people who are willing to help. Right. So uh, there's companies that respond to people's posts about, hey, I was just laid off. Hey, go check out this company or, hey, we're hiring here or or, I heard they're hiring over there. So, you know, 
make sure you're reaching out and don't be af- afraid to let people know, you know, let Mike and I know, we know a lot of people who are hiring and, or, you know, different community leaders in different parts of the country and the world who are always looking for talented robotics folks. So I think that's an important part of this too, is just to make sure you reach out to others in the industry because a lot of robotics companies are still hiring and are des- in desperate need of talent. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm sure most people won't be out uh, for, for too long, but uh, we'll, we'll continue to follow all these stories and more, obviously, as they as they develop, we get you covered. With our network of industry-leading publications, webinars, and events, you can check us out at The Robot Report, Mobile Robot Guide, Robotics Business Review, and Collaborative Robotics Trends. Uh, on to CES, Mike. I know you got to go there. Was this your... Was it the first time you've been to CES? This is the first time I've been to CES. It's the first time I've been in a in a job function, you know, where it made sense for me to go. Yeah, yeah. I've always I've always wanted to go just because I was a geek. I, I own a lot of consumer electronics, but never. Yeah, had the it, but I wasn't sure it made sense either. That's why we didn't send more than one person. I just wasn't sure. Yeah. You know, it in in years past, I remember it was mainly, it was very heavy on the social consumer robots, right? That we all. And they were there. Those were. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. they were there. But it did before the pandemic start to get more serious with more commercial, you know, industrial robotics companies. But that seems to be the case from what you found, obviously. Yeah, well, there were companies like John Deere there showing off their tractors. You sort of question why is John Deere at a consumer electronic? It's not. A, it's not a consumer electronic, right? Food. Food isn't a consumer electronic, but uh, you know they're there to because they want to be a technology leader, right? Um, Caterpillar was there and they had a huge, I don't know, I don't know how big those track, the trucks are that carry mining, um, dirt around, but it's got the nine foot tall tires on it. Um, they weren't there to be a tech, to talk about technology, but they were, it was a recruiting booth, Steve. They yeah. were there trying to find, we just talked about layoffs. They were there trying to find new, new, uh, new, uh, talent. So again, go, go check out Caterpillar. If, if you're in a place and you're looking for an opportunity, may not have been something you thought about before, but they're trying, they need automation folks. Right. And well, I mean, there's a pretty good chance of finding someone when there's 150,000, but probably more than that people yeah. from around the world who are convening to this place for a week. So, but I, I think I found your new phrase, there, Mike. Serendipitous discovery seems to be your your new go to phrase. What what were some of the cooler things you saw in Vegas? Well, look, I mean, this event is so huge; it's way bigger than I ever imagined. I've been to all of those Vegas convention centers floors in one event or another over the years, but when you try to realize they're all populated with the same event, it's mind boggling how you're going to you know see all that stuff. And so, you know, this year, while I got a lot of queries from folks, come see my product, come talk to our executive. Um, and if you're listening and you asked me to do that, I decided not to schedule any any interviews except for one that you'll hear later today with the Indie Autonomous Challenge founder. But, you know, I didn't want to be running back and forth or throughout CES to try and make, you know, one meeting to another that was between any of those facilities. That would have been nuts. <laughs> right? Yeah, you would have been dead. You wouldn't have made it back. Yeah. So I just figured I was going to take a single path. I plotted my path through through all the facilities on different days. Right. And I knew I just had one chance, one time to walk past a booth. And if I happen to catch, you know, somebody there 
uh, great. I talked to them. And again, I missed some, some talking to some folks because I saw they were busy. I didn't want to disrupt them from talking to customers. So I apologize if, again, I, I, you know who you are. I've, I've told you that I, sorry, I saw your booth, but I didn't, didn't stop and talk to you. But, you know, I had a short list of 60 ro- companies with robotic solutions in them to try and see. And so this is where this idea is. I just sort of wandered through to see what I could find. Um, and what I could discover serendipitously, um, just wandering through the the show. And, you know, again, that's the thing about a show like this. There are products in booths that they don't advertise themselves as a robotic solution. And by the way, Steve, you know, how do you define a robotic solution? I mean, I saw a robotic bartender, the idea of a, this device that, you know, can pour you any drink. You just dial it in, it pours you a drink. They're calling a robotic bartender. And, you know, you know we've talked about this many times. It's not a robot. Or is it, right? Is your refrigerator <laughs> a robot, right? Because yeah, it makes yeah. water and ice and drinks and whatever. But, you know, everybody's jumping on the robotic bandwagon now. But, um, you know, having said that, I did get a chance to 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 talk to and interview quite a few people. And so um, let, let's hear from a couple of those folks now. Uh, first of all, I had the chance to see the, the new Gen 2 AO robot from Aeolus Robotics. And uh, I had a chance to to talk to and interview Dan Haddock. He's the head of product for Aeolus. And he told me all about this new generation of product. Um, so let's hear from him now uh, firsthand about what they uh, uh, have released now with this, this new product. So tell me, what's your name? Uh, Dan Haddock, uh, head of product for Aeolus Robotics. And how long have you been with uh, Aeolus? Uh, since 2018, about, uh, about five years. Okay. And so t- tell me what we're looking at. What's the, what's the, sh- the product? This is AO. Uh, we're inviting people here at CES to come meet AO. Uh, this is our uh, second generation robot uh, using its third generation arms. And we have been running for uh, almost three years in uh, Asia, uh, performing lots of uh, subscription services in that market. And we're now looking at bringing it to the U.S. market, finding distribution, finding partners to uh, replicate that kind of a subscription model uh, here in the United States. And so that's uh, our main purpose for coming here to CES again uh, since 2018, is to show the new capabilities and talk about the success we've been having in Asia and uh, applying it here to the U.S. market. So AO is a, it's a dual-armed yes. robot. Mm-hmm. How many degrees of freedom does yeah, the system have? Seven degrees of freedom on each arm. Okay. Uh, plus a removal gripper. Um, in this demonstration here today, one arm has a UV disinfecting uh, end effector, and the other arm has a flexible gripper that we developed uh, to do things like grasp, grasp the, um, uh, the the door handle for swing doors. So one of the things we'll be showing over at the booth later this week is uh, not just this door handle as we have here in this demo, but a full swing door traverse. Okay. So. Actually, open the door Absolutely. and drive through. With open the door and drive through. Yeah. So what we had to do to put that together, starting out the end effector with a flexible end effector to put that torque on the uh, on the door handle, and to have some compliance out there at the end effector, and then uh, use it as a seven DOF arm. Uh, now with our new whole uh, whole body control system, that's also new to do the swing door. So. We have whole, whole body control, seven degrees of freedom arms, two more degrees of freedom in the torso, uh, up and rotate, uh, and the flexible compliant gripper. We can now use our vision systems to pose estimate the door handle, and then use our uh, planning control systems to make the grasp do the turn, a uh, pre-open, and then the full whole body motion uh, 
through the door uh, and traverse through it. And we'll be showing that at the booth. It's quite a nice, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially showing why we need to have sort of all the pieces together. Um, because you need the vision, you need, you know, everything from the end effector through the arms, torso, uh, base, and uh, navigation and manipulation uh, pieces to do that uh, one single function. And so, and, and so describe to me um, the base. Does it have its own uh, cameras in the base it for does. navigation yeah. optical avoidance? Yeah, it does. And then there's additional vision camera in the head, in the yeah. head for other operations. How do right. those two work together, or do, don't they? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, all of our sensors do work together um, when they're needed for certain functions. So our navigation system, uses the head sensing for collision avoidance. Okay. Absolutely. And um, uh, our manipulation system, for example, when it's reaching for the door handle, we're using the LiDAR to continuously estimate the pose of the door. So the sensors on the top up in the head and the sensors on the bottom are used throughout all the functions uh, for their particular point of view. Okay. So uh, head sensors can do collision avoidance for navigation, while LiDAR is doing pose estimation of doors for the manipulation. And what about, I mean, this would be considered a collaborative robot yeah. arm. Mm -hmm. What about for safety then? How do you sure. handle for safety either for force compliance or yeah. if someone was to walk into the yeah. motion yeah. space for the arm? The, the, each joint does have a, um, uh, a collision avoidance detection capability. And so, Individually um, within in, that yeah. single axis, mm -hmm. so like yeah. an elbow, if it was to pinch something, would stop yeah. at a certain force. Correct. But if I was to walk into the arms and it was reaching for the, put my hand in the way of yeah. reaching for the door, it would. How would it know that my hand was there? Oh, it would. It would do it through the, uh, uh, the force sensing um, in the arm. So uh, when it detects um, that it's not reached its plan, okay. it'll stop and retry. Okay. So if it can't execute its motion the way it's been planned, it will, uh, uh, we actually have what we call recovery motion, where it actually reverses back through the trajectories, and then we'll do a retry. So it'll go look at the scene again with the vision systems, and it'll do a replan and try again. So it, it's sort of, um, uh, if, it doesn't reach its, if it doesn't reach its plan, it tries again. I guess what I'm saying is, yeah. does it keep track of me as a human movable oh, obstacle to yeah. walk into its working space mm -hmm. and not even attempt that if I'm... Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So the UV disinfection that we're demonstrating right here yeah. is a good example of that. Um, we actually detect humans as a different type of obstacle yeah. than, than, uh, than, than um, other Chairs obstacles. Or exactly. And we do that to, uh, primarily two different ways. One is we do use a LiDAR leg tracking algorithm okay. that is watching uh, 270 degrees around the robot. So if I'm walking near it, it's detecting my legs as a person and assigns me a track ID. Is that happening in this slotted space? It is, above yes. The There's a slotted space above the base yeah. that sees 270 degrees so around the robot. Off the ground so. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's doing a LiDAR leg tracking. Uh, any, any legs that are in motion, it will use a, a deep learning algorithm to, to discover the leg. Gotcha. It'll assign a track ID to that leg. And now that's very important for our applications because if we see we're in an elder care environment and perhaps we're operating on some object somewhere and our head attention is away from the hallway and someone walks down the hallway, we can detect the presence of a person and we can send our, our head attention to that person to do a visual detection. 
So one of the things that we'll do is if we're navigating down a hallway in the elder care facility, is we may detect a person's legs along the side, we'll actually move the head attention over and try to do a visual recognition to determine is that a resident or is that a care assistant? Should that person be walking there or not? And the initial leg detection will create a track and then we'll correlate that with the vision system and we can do, uh, do an identification, know who the person is, and then continue to track them through the LiDAR. So it's a rather sophisticated set of uh, sensing and uh, detection algorithms. Now, when you if you were to deploy this to take an elder care facility mm -hmm. for the first time, how would you map the facility? How much mapping yeah. needs to be pre-done? How much is it due on the fly and then sure. update sort of in real time? And that's something we put a lot of that's something we put a lot of effort into because yeah. it is one of the big barriers to entry to actually scaling robotic services is the installation and um, uh, deployment to new facilities. Uh, we do make maps in a, in a somewhat conventional way using the lidar to, to map the facilities. Standard slam. Yeah, we do high quality maps. We we, we spend a little bit of time on them um, to make sure that they're high quality maps that. Uh, stand the test of time. And uh, after that, we just teach the robot uh, the basic interactions that it needs to have in the facility. So we'll just point it at a door, that's a door, point an elevator, if that's the elevator, annotate the elevator panels, annotate the doors, go through, um, and then it's ready to roll. So uh, set up, it automatically sets up the topologies it needs to, to go through doors and ride elevators between floors once we show it where they are. And uh, So for mission planning then to send the robot from one something from here to there or right. do this operation and it makes its own lineup how it's going to fly. Yes, absolutely. So if we're on the bottom floor of the facility and we're telling it to go to room 302 on the third floor, it has the knowledge of the, of the full facility topology and it knows to go and take elevator one because it goes from the first to the third floor and elevator two only goes from the first to the fourth floor. Then it can navigate through the facility using its knowledge of the topology and it does its own uh, routing um, algorithms through those, uh, through those various Trickiest it's thing. quite a bit difficult. How are you pushing buttons or are you talking to the elevator server to? We are pushing buttons uh, because we found that it is very difficult um, to to get wireless and other advanced control elevator functions into facilities in the real world. Yeah. And so one of the demonstrations we're showing here is the button pressing part of the elevator. At the booth we'll be showing okay. a full elevator run. Uh, but we, we we do the whole thing uh, the way a human would. We, we look at the panel, we recognize the button, we decide what button needs to be pressed, we use that flexible gripper or you know some of our other grippers, and we reach out and we make that button press. We detect that the button was pressed by looking at the highlights. We wait for the door to open, we go in, we look for the interior panel, we press the destination floor button based on our topological knowledge of the facility, and then we, through various means, wait till we arrive at that floor. Uh, we even have cases where someone will come into the elevator and rise to a different floor. The robot's just got to wait yeah. until it gets to the right floor. We wait for the door to open and we exit on that floor. So we do the whole thing the way a person would and it, it's quite a challenging uh, function that we do provide. It's uh, one of our most important functions. Yeah, that's a good example. I mean, Relay Robotics went to the same solution oh, yeah. after having you know, lots of issues permitting and getting you know access to elevator it, control. It's very hard to facilities. Right. And that's one of the reasons that we put a lot of effort into the swing door capability. Okay. Because in Asia, it's fine to operate sliding doors because they're plentiful there. But for the U.S. market, we need that swing door capability, which is a whole other level of uh, sensing and whole, whole uh, body control. And one last question then about the, the floor requirements yeah. for this. Probably works fine on a linoleum hospital-like 
facility wasn't Fantastic about on that. a typical yeah. elder care apartments where carpet, mm-hmm. tile to floor thresholds, yeah. floor thresholds, those type of Yeah, so things. this particular base is fine for most indoor uh, surfaces. <clears throat> As you can see, it's, it's, it's navigating on the Caesars Palace carpet here, which is fairly typical. We don't, we don't see much more pile than this in institutional environments. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is okay for us. Uh, much more gets a little bit difficult. Um, thresholds, we can do about a centimeter, uh, a square centimeter threshold, um, and that's very suitable for elder care, hospital, and most of those types of environments. Indoor, indoor, uh, enterprise type environments is, is pretty suitable uh, for much more, um, you know, for different types of environments. We, we do have plans for some upgraded base uh, capabilities. So, so the last question: In what sort of in, in this generation from the prior generation so oh absolutely several years ago yeah sort of a... well we're on our second generation robot yeah. so it's a, it's a ground up new robot since 2018 and we're on our third generation arm uh, and that's what you're seeing here today the third generation arm okay. uh, the second generation body um, really refines a lot of the body from the original one a lot more computing horsepower it's all in the back of the robot uh, the sensing suite in the head is substantially upgraded and uh, a few of the major things were showing here for the first time at CES is an infrared camera in the head. So uh, putting infrared in the head has uh, been quite a lot of work to put all that sensing into the head. Uh, but we absolutely need it. One of our primary um, services is operating at night because it's very hard to staff night shifts around the world. If a third of your staff has to work from midnight to 8 a.m. in the hospital and um, elder care environments, it's really a barrier to, to employee retention and staffing. And so a lot of our functions are at night, and that means full darkness operation. Um, also, you talked about some of the challenges in the elevator. Well, we don't know this as humans, but elevator lights inside actually turn off after a few seconds if, if there's no one inside. Yeah. So we need this infrared capability to um, check on patients at night, ride elevators, uh, do our security services at night. And so infrared in the head is one of the things we're showing here for the first time. We're also showing a new capability in the back of the robot, which is an accessory mounting point where we can hold you know, a good 10, 15 pounds on the back of the robot, uh, provide uh, 12 volt power, um, up to 100 plus watts, and uh, Ethernet and USB. So third party, um, we like to describe it as, we'll get you where you need to go. So if you have a thermal camera or something. Uh, I'm looking at it, it's got, a, it's got a backpack and then a sort of a shoulder shelf. A shoulder shelf, that's what we have. shoulder shelf yep. is where the integration points are, you yep. can put more things there. Exactly, if you look at our uh, older models, uh, the 2018 model, there wasn't anything back there, it was just a computing complex. Now we have this new uh, shelf back there that can hold quite a bit of weight. Uh, we provide power, high-speed Ethernet, high-speed USB, if you have a thermal camera, if you have uh, a computing module, an AI uh, edge device you may want to put up there, uh, we can just integrate with you. And really the, the message there is, we'll get you where you need to go. If you have a sensing package, if you have a communications package, maybe you have an IoT edge device you want to be able to interoperate with things, uh, maybe RFID. Um, we can get you through the facility, right? We can take you up and down the elevators, we can take you through the doors, and we can get your sensing package where it needs to go. And so that's one of the things we're also talking about at the CES, is partnerships for people to put third-party applications onto the back of the robot or onto the end effect. All right, well, yep. thanks, Harry. Thank you. You know, Mike, you actually first pointed this out to me. I don't think you were in Vegas yet, but you, you shared that they were coming out or would gonna be showcasing 
their Gen 2 product. And full disclosure, I think I told you not to cover this, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I saw the first Gen at a previous CES show, and they made the common mistake that a lot of these companies developing humanoid robots make is, hey, this is going to vacuum your home. Right. This is going to be able to tidy up after all your kids yeah. you know, leaving their Lego bricks on the ground. And that was part of the demo that they had at CES was that, va- you know, holding a, a vacuum, per se, in, in cleaning uh, in the booth. And, you know, everybody listening to this knows why that's not realistic at this point in time. But they actually changed this, I think, for the better, Mike. Yeah, and, and obviously, I think AO probably looks the closest to Rosie the robot. It's got two arms. It's got a head that moves. It's got a torso. Now, the new torso um, has multiple joints. It can bend forward, backward, rotate left, right, independent of the base. So the base doesn't have to rotate. It can actually rotate its torso. So that's new. Um, but more than anything, you know, this Gen 2 is now designed for manufacturability. It's designed to be in production. This is their production unit now. They called the prior version that you saw a prototype, and I asked him about it. I said, you know, what was that first version four years ago? And he goes, that was our prototype. This is our production unit. It's for sale now. So, you know, the fit and finish on it, I could tell when you look up close, it's not just 3D printed parts on this version, Steve. I mean, this is production injected molded plastic for all the body parts. Obviously, all the motors and what have you now are production cabling, all that stuff. Uh, looks production. So, uh, you know, full, full on uh, production ready solution. And the other thing that I noticed in the torso, the, you know, it's got a new shelf backpack that's a third party integration point. So they believe that, you know, third parties are going to mount things on this, other cameras, other sensing devices. I don't know, you could maybe mount some other additional things to it. So they've thought about that. That wasn't in that first generation, right? Um, but I think as you and I have also talked, you know, two arms makes this robot expensive and yep. complex, um, especially if you compare it to, say, the Diligent Moxie robot, which looks very similar and may be used in similar use cases in hospitals and elder care facilities. But it only has one arm, the, Mo- the Moxie robot. So, you know, those are decisions that the companies have have made differently. But one thing I will say, and they pitched this pretty heavily uh, at the booth is that both arms could be equipped with different end effectors. Uh, it can pick up things like trays, uh, has this UV light, multiple UV light uh, disinfection end effectors. Um, it has an effector that can pick up things. It has an end effector that has a tablet on it. So they're trying to think about how, you know, how they can differentiate that way with these different types of, of end effectors. Yeah, and, and that's what where I started to rethink this is it does look a lot like Moxie. Right. And Moxie has had some success uh, here early on, but mm-hmm. and, and, and I'm not I haven't looked into Moxie in, in a little bit of time here. I'm not sure how much that arm is used. Right. And that I think that's still my my problem with the uh, new Aeolus robot is how much are those arms realistically going to be used rather than is it just a glorified delivery robot? that is much more expensive and over-engineered than probably needed to be, right? Yeah, well, well, here, and this is a topic we've talked about in the past with Steve Cousins from uh, Relay Robotics. Um, they had a demo in their booth on a CES floor um, showing the robot um, finding and pushing the elevator buttons in an elevator. They simulated an elevator on the floor, and I took some video of that and put it on the social for our Instagram channel of the robot doing this. And Steve, that's a, the, we talked about 
the, how hard it is to integrate, you know, in a new facility. I actually talked to them about it. They they verified the same sort of market deployment problems that Relay had, um, which was, uh, you know, they're they're not even going to talk to the to the robot controller. They're going to use the robot in the robot vision to to work with any existing elevator in any of the facilities that they deploy this into. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So we'll, we'll have to keep an eye out. Uh, I think they said that they they have some customers in China. Is that right? No, Japan. They are Japan. Deployed, deployed in Japan in, in uh, multiple tens of sites is sort of what I heard from them. So they're starting to build their their customer base and use cases in Japan right now. And they want to come to the U.S., which is why they were here at CES. So, you know, are these paying customers or are they more like a, a trial or a pilot? Did, did I, you get that? Yeah, they're offering it as a service, so they are they are paying customers. Yeah, well, very cool. Right. What else did you see? What else did you see? I know uh, we should point people to uh, your recap of the best robots that yeah. you saw at CES. But what's another one you want to mention? Well, I got to talk about one of my favorite robot toys, since there are were a lot of robot toys there, some of which aren't worth mentioning yet. But my favorite <laughs> one was uh, this Optimus Prime robot from Robosyn, and if you're a fan of Adam Savage and his tested uh, YouTube channel. If not, go check it out. I love Adam Savage. Uh, he he had this a robot on his channel where he had it for a week and played with it. So it's very cool, but it's $1,000 for this, quote, toy. Um, but again, I think it's targeted at adults with disposable income, which is one of the reasons I chose to highlight it, because I think that a lot of our audience are the exact customer for this for this robot. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you can control it with a gamepad, with a remote control and make it walk around, but it's also, they've got a full API on it. It's fully programmable. Uh, and I had a chance to talk to Tony Crisp, who's their chief marketing officer about it, uh, its functionality and their vision for the future of this. And so he talks about how they are just at the beginning of their roadmap now. This is the first product that they brought to market, and, and it, it works fantastically well from what they can demo. But they've got a whole vision for taking what they've learned on this now and putting it into the next idea in the product line, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute after we hear from uh, Tony in this uh, short interview clip so i'm here with tony crisp yeah, yeah tony crisp so hi, so hi tony what's your what's your role here at Robozen? Uh, i'm here to uh help show the world how we make life more fun with robots yeah. cool i'm the cmo yeah yeah great so tell me uh, uh, what what this uh product is and, and why it's so Awesome. Sure. I think uh, you know one of the main our mission is to make life more fun with robots. Yeah. And one of our primary goals in that mission is, as you can see on our wall here, we want to take some of your favorite characters from the screen. Yeah. And bring them into reality. Right. So one of the first ones, and we've been working on this for 15 years, but the the one that really put us on the map was Optimus Prime. Right. And that's the one you, you mentioned you saw uh, you know go viral with Adam Savage and some of, some of the others and. Uh, um, you know, some of the things that you're seeing. So what does reality mean? For us, it's primarily three different areas. So number one, just from the aesthetic side, we're trying to make it ultra authentic. Yeah. So we're trying to get into uh, understanding what the original creators had in mind from the screen, from the cartoons, from the movies. From the animation to reality, yeah, right? Yeah, and try to you know, what, what would it look like if it was a, a real product? Yeah. So we're really getting into the color, the paintings, we're getting into the materials, choosing the right materials, the finishes. Detail, uh, detail on it's all about the details, yeah. right? And and I think our consumers are the ones that really care about those types of things. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go beyond that, we're talking about now the internals. We're talking about the robotics side, which I think you know some of your fans would probably be. Yeah. Concerned. So, uh, what are we really talking about? We're, we're talking about things like mobility. 
you know, how can we, uh, you know, take the constraints of the original design and try and make it as mobile as possible. Uh, we're talking about stability. So now we're taking uh, the algorithms of, you know, of our microchip, of our motors, and figure out how can we have it do a push-up or a kung fu move, or because our robots are programmable, uh, allowing the the kids or adults who are programming robots to do things like show how to do the Gundam dance yeah. and still maintain the balance. And so uh, that's one. And I think the last thing is, you know, because our robots are, uh, you know, voice activated, you can do voice control. We wanted to make it as ultra authentic as possible. So now when you're talking to, uh, you know, Hasbro's Transformer, you're actually talking to Peter Cullen, right? So we, in, in partnership with Hasbro, we teamed up with Peter Cullen and had him do all the original voices for our robot. Great. And uh, you know, with our partnership with Disney, we're going to be uh, launching Buzz Light. I don't know if you have a chance to see our prototype. We have one prototype of Buzz yeah, Light there. Right. Um, you'll, so, you'll see some of that ultra authentic, uh, you know, painting and materials and colors and finishes with Buzz Lightyear. But you know, we're doing uh, we're teaming up with you know Chris Evans to do recording some some voices. So you're actually going to talk to the actual Buzz Lightyear or you know, Chris Evans when you're interacting right. with Buzz Lightyear. And so all of these, I, just sort of the, the how it operates is it's, it seems to be very seamless in terms of the operations. Yeah, you know the, the agility that it has is I think goes beyond just sort of a simple toy to, to really more of the, the higher end robotics type. Absolutely, of and, and I think you bring up a great point. It's not a toy. Yeah. Right? We are a robotics company. Yeah. And if you look at our team, we have uh, software engineers, we have hardware engineers. Mm -hmm. On the software side, they're AI scientists. Yeah. Uh, when you're not seeing a lot of AI yet, okay. so you can, if you stay in, stay in contact with us, we'll keep you in touch with what's on our roadmap Great. for, for okay. AI. Um, and then we have the robotic side, so all these robotic scientists. Um, and they're trying to make our mission come to life, which is trying to make it as real as possible. So now when you're engaging and interacting with a robot, it feels real. And the device is programmed, it comes with some out of the box sort of motions, but you said you can actually teach it new things then from a deeply Great question. programmatic element. Yeah, so you know, I'm sure your audience is probably more on the you know, tech enthusiast side. So they'll yeah. appreciate the fact that you can go in and our robots come pre-programmed with dozens of actions, mm -hmm. uh, but beyond that, we have three different levels of programming. Okay. So there's basic, intermediate, and advanced. On the basic side, we do block-based programming, which you may know as- Blockly like, oh yeah, right. Drag and drop, right? <laughs> right? Uh -huh. Which is good for kids ages four and up. Great, yeah. Right, and then on the intermediate side, we have 3D, 3D articulation. So you can think of like more like stop motion type of programming. Okay. Uh, and then for the advanced users, we have a way for you to plug your robot directly into your PC. Okay. And on our roadmap, we're going to have an SDK. Okay. So that's going to open it up to so you. You get program in Java or Rust or whatever. Well, hopefully it's going to be limitless. Yeah, okay. Right? Uh -huh. So. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's very cool. Um, what other, I mean, are they Optimus Prime, obviously a big, a big uh, character that a lot of our listeners obviously know all too well and, and, and have some affection for. What, what are they, did you get out of them like other types of characters that they want to work with or build similar products for? Yeah, and they, they teased us at the show. Um, basically they're planning uh, on their roadmap. Uh, they've got they've got a collaboration with Pix, Pixar and Dix Disney. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to create uh, similarly functions. So take the same function that, that you see happening with with Optimus Prime and their first model that's going to happen later this year is Buzz Lightyear. So they they had a non-functional prototype of the Buzz Lightyear 
robot full scale in its full scale i mean scaled to the same size as the as the as the optimus prime and then they're going to put all of the electric joints into that shortly here that'll be the next product that comes out probably by christmas of, of this year let's hope yeah this this is these i would if i was to guess these are going to be major successes i would think yeah right? and, co and collectibles too so yeah, and I know this is not the same as a, a social robot or a companion robot. There's a you know some of those that have failed over the years, and I have always thought, you know, the problem there is take a Jibo for example, or yeah, yeah. this this uh, Astro robot that Amazon is is working on and has the invite only uh, access for at this point in time. You know, th they're creating these quote unquote characters that nobody has any attachment to. Yeah, right. You know, there's no backstory about Jibo that or or Astro, right? Which people have known for years and decades and have come to love. Optimus Prime, Buzz Lightyear, pick any Disney Pixar character you want. Those characters, their stories are so well established that people feel some sort of connection to that character, right? So they're much more likely to spend a thousand dollars on something like that because they have an affinity for it right rather than some concept that there there is no backstory to so wow that's pretty cool yeah and when it's and when it's built with quality it has the range of motion that you can i mean do these crazy you know karate kicks and what have you that you know you can't get out of some any other toy it, again folks will it's got extended play is what it comes down to as adam savage talks about in you know in his review of it does it have any of the personality though? Like, will they have you know the Buzz Lightyear voice, and will it have any oh, sort of? Absolutely, yeah. They, they'll yeah, because of the partnership with 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 Pixar, they'll fully license all of that audio to go along with it. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a home run. And and to do his famous, you know, to infinity and beyond uh, pose and all that sort of stuff will be programmed, you know, out of the box kind of thing. No, very cool. Uh, also, your your indie autonomous race. I know you had some concerns about the weather prior to the event and how it was going to affect the event, but it went off without a hitch, right? Yeah. And of course the India autonomous challenge hap, uh, was one of the reasons why I, I decided I wanted to go to the event that that sort of was the, the big reason for going out was to cover the India autonomous challenge, what happened on Saturday. And of course I was able to spend a couple of days before that at the actual uh, trade show. Um, and it, it, look, it didn't disappoint again this year either. Um, I was planning to go last year, but that, but backed out at the last moment because of that big COVID surge that happened right before CES a, a year ago. So it was fun to get back out there and see the cars happen. Uh, it, it took place at uh, Las Vegas Speedway. They allowed a lot of the folks, they, they took buses out on Saturday. For CES crowd could sign up to actually go and watch the race. Um, and again, this year, like last year, the Team Polymove won that autonomous challenge. Um, they set a new speed record. Uh, reaching a, a max speed of 180 miles per hour while while lapping another car. So they continue to push the envelope there. And it was exciting to see the, the cars getting faster and faster and faster as they as they continued to, to go around the track. Um, but there was also a lot of drama that happened this week uh, uh, that we didn't we didn't get to see, but I you know I was able to interview a lot of the teams and apparently on Wednesday, on the track, while TUM and Mitt Pitt RW team uh, were racing, 
uh, the the TUM team who won the original uh, event back at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, um, they T-boned the mid pit car going about 140 miles an hour, and it essentially destroyed the entire engine bay of the mid pit car. And, and the poor mechanics had to work uh, pretty much. They were up for 48 hours trying to get the car repaired back on the track in, in time for you know the qualifications on on Friday. So that was a long week for some of those folks, but Jeez. they made. But they made it happen, um, and yeah, again, it was it was a fun event. The event is available for replay, so you, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can go back to the uh, IAC website, and you'll you'll be able to uh, to, to rewatch the event uh, if if you obviously if you weren't there or you weren't able to watch it live on the day of the event. So for the last uh, interview this week, um, I had the opportunity to sit down with Paul Mitchell. He's the president and founder, the guy that came up with this idea and, and made it happen for the Indianness. India Autonomous Challenge uh, uh, two years ago. So he and I had a chance to sit down for a, a short bit of time, talk about the race this year, and talk about where it goes next. So let's listen to this uh, this short interview with, with Paul Mitchell. So let's just start, Paul, um, by uh, giving us an update. You know, it's been 14, 15 months since the inaugural race. You've had three events since then, pretty much. Yeah. And, and a new generation of team participants, right? The yeah. teams have evolved. So yeah. um, tell me and tell us, uh, you know, how this whole event has evolved in the last Yeah, so, I, you know, I think, first of all, we never knew whether or not the Indy Autonomous Challenge would go beyond being a one-off prize competition. Right, right? Yep. Uh, So when we, when we made the call to universities around the world to sign up for the competition, you know, the promise was we would run an event at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway on October 23rd, 2021, and we give out a million dollar prize. And, you know, we were trying to in many ways replicate DARPA. And so DARPA was done, it was done. They, they went on to other challenges, but you know, you sort of put the that challenge was, out there, you give the prize and you declare victory and move achieve on. Achieve the goals. You and so we had to go through this transition with our sponsors, with our teams, uh, with our partnership with the, the state of Indiana, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation to sort of make the decision you know, should we keep doing this? Um, and honestly, even the first race at CES was still... Um, a year ago. That was a year ago. One year ago. But yeah. that was still like an extension of the prize competition. Because yeah. we said, okay, we, we didn't get to the point where we could do passing at, at Indy. And we knew that we could do it if we had a few more months. So yeah. we said, okay, let's do CES. It wasn't until after CES that we really made the decision to, to keep going, to, yeah. to, to create more events, to transition eventually from ovals to road courses and that there's something really that there's something there that could, that's, that, that could be and iterative and, could, yeah. and and frankly needs to continue to add value to the industry if yeah. it's just about show and tell of of a static technology uh that's not very interesting and that's not why we're doing this so we needed to find ways to make the car better to get more teams involved to take on new technical challenges that push the boundaries of autonomous mobility. And if we can do that, then we'll keep we'll keep running these events. If it turns out that the events just become a, you know, a, 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 a demonstration or a, or, or a, a science, yeah. you know, demonstration or technology demonstration spectacle, you know, that's not really why we, we've right. committed ourselves to this. So, so it, 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 
let's dig down a little bit deeper on two things that you said there. One was that there's more to to accomplish now from a technology perspective. Yeah. And then also, as, as we've talked about, I've talked about and informed the, re, the listeners about some of the technology thing, hurdles that have been leaped now yeah. as well. So can you recap sort of those the two levels? You don't have to go deep on the technical. <coughs> yeah, so, folks cover that. you know, first of all, we need to get to the point where the, the race cars are, um, you know, really reliable. Uh, the technology is, is integrated and packaged in a way that's durable, that's easy to repair and replace. Um, you know, the cars we ran in, in October at, at, at uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway in 2021 were, were you know, nine prototypes, yeah. right? And since then, we've made adjustments uh, to the internal um, packaging, and we've added new components that have made the car more robust. We put in a new supercomputer. Uh, we're going to be upgrading a lot of the components over the next year uh, to make sure we're always using leading-edge uh, perception systems, LIDAR, radar, So each uh, of your GPS, partners there are going to continue right. to push the limit Exa- on their, exactly. their cutting edge Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other kind of big challenge that we're going to take on is moving from ovals to road courses. Yeah. So uh, ovals are all about speed. It's about, you know, operating at 130, 150, 170 miles an hour, you know, consistently, right? Yeah. Um, road courses bring a whole different challenge of, yeah. of um, not only perceiving your surroundings and making overtakes at high speeds, but also having to to navigate challenging turns yeah. left and right <laughs> and um, uh, and so what better place to do that than the temple of speed in Monza right because right. Uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna take these challenges on you got to do it at places that are so compelling and so exciting that it attracts the best and brightest minds to want to work on it because they want to be there for that moment in history and, and uh, that's a historical place exactly well. just as the way just the same that Indianapolis Motor right. Speedway was so, right so um, kudos to making those decisions because I think that's a classic. yeah well I spent a, a fair amount of time this last summer in 2022 yeah. uh, in Italy actually uh, I moved my family job. there for rough about six weeks yeah, yeah and uh, <laughs> built some deep relationships with some of our partners there and, and, and from that emerged this opportunity to partner with the Milan Monza Motor Show and Andrea Levy who's an incredible uh, promoter and, and innovator uh, who runs that organization and uh, we've got government support from the, the region of, of Lombardy there uh, which is you know mirrors kind of what we have in Indiana with the state of Indiana because this thing really is not uh, something that can be done as just a, uh, a for-profit activity we're set up as a nonprofit and we have to have a partnership with government with industry with academia uh, and we need investments from all of the above to keep this kind of technical incubator going. Right. And, and on the incubator side, it's fun to see companies like DriveBlocks yeah. spin out, I would say, directly yeah. from... Yeah, there's another one, Autonoma, that, is, yeah. uh, that has yeah. just been launched as well. Yeah, so I'm sure there will be more as, yes. as these generations of students graduate. Yeah, so they graduate. And, yeah, and I, and I hope, I, I hope, I don't can say this for sure, but I hope that some of them are, are more confident to become entrepreneurs after yeah. their experience with the Indy Autonomous yeah. Challenge, going through the stress and the, the high stakes and the pressure of, of company competing in motorsports, you know, maybe gives them the the, the confidence to go out and, and start their own business versus going and working for the many, many companies who would be happy to hire them, right? Exactly, um, yeah. Well, well, Paul, this has been exciting. Great. It's been fun to catch up with you here in Las Vegas yep. and uh, looking forward to the competition. What are your uh, last word here? What are your expectations for this weekend? Yeah, I just, you know, so 
one, it's just going to be a lot bigger show, right? Yeah. We're going to have more people there now that the pandemic restrictions have been have been lifted. Um, so more 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 audience on site, which is great. Um, yeah. I think uh, hopefully we see at least as high as speeds as last year, if not higher. Some of that is out of our control, really. Depends, depends a little bit on the weather. Uh, you know, we yeah. have learned that that you know when you're running in weather conditions that are below 60 degrees, it's hard to get your cars up to that 180, top. 190 miles yeah. an hour. Um, it, you know, there's tire issues, there's engine performance issues, um, but you know, even even then, I think that the head-to-head passing, some of the maneuvering that we've been seeing from teams where uh, they're not just overtaking, but they're making you know crash avoidance maneuvers that replicate what a, a, a really professional experienced yeah. race car driver uh, does so um, codified that yeah I mean it's different it's yeah. different now than it was uh, even if you saw the event in Texas some of the maneuvers that the polymove team made um, were, were not what we were doing you know a year ago where there was passing but the passing was a little bit more controlled now you're starting to see more free flow head to head racing and um, you know and I think everybody's excited about putting on a, a great show for this wonderful event that is CEO Yes. Yeah, great. Well, Paul, thanks again for your time. I know you're a busy person here today and this week, so thanks for uh, giving us some insight. Thank you. What's going on. As always, Mike, take care. Yeah. Great. Thank you. All right. So, so Steve, as you heard, just to recap, the, the next exciting thing that happens now is that the event's moving to road course racing. So up till now, it's all been, you know, running around the, the loop um, of, of it, the indie style racing. So the this inaugural race is going to be held at the famous Monza racetrack, which is near Milan, Italy. And this is the known as the Ferrari home track. So this is... Yeah, I bet you don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna have to twist your arm to get you to go to that one, huh? Yeah, so so look, the Italy event takes place in mid June, uh, and due to the cost bought to ship the race cars overseas, it's probably only gonna involve a handful of competitors. And I'm thinking that maybe is the European teams like TUM, Polymove, and Euro Racing. So it'll be a smaller event, it's really just a demonstration. Um, but again, they're gonna try and adopt the same format of trying to pass at speed and then increasing the speeds as they go around the course of two cars on a track at a time. And as Paul said, they started this event uh, in partnership with the famous Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And now they're parten- partnering with which I think is arguably the most famous road course in the world at Monza. So uh, uh, I wrote a story summarizing it and I'll put a link to to that in the show notes for folks that wanna follow up. Yeah, no, great job uh, covering CES. But I, I think my main takeaway is I think we need more boots on the ground next year going yeah, forward. I agree. <laughs> yep. So maybe we'll we'll get the whole crew out there. I, I walked like eighteen thousand steps on uh, the first day <laughs> and sixteen thousand steps on the second day, and, and my feet, and my knees were were killing me. That's not your normal number of steps in a given day. No. No. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> Well, no, that's great. I used to go to CES all the time. Uh, obviously, the pandemic happened, and but it looks like it's back up and running in full gear. So good for them. It was always a great show. So it's good to see. Um, all right, folks, that's going to do it for episode 103. Before we go, we do have to remind you, like we did at the top, registration is now open for our Robotics Summit and Expo and Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forums. These shows are co-located together, May 10th and 11th, here in Boston, in my neck of the woods. 
these events focus on the design and development of commercial robots. The robotics summit is is a little bit broader. Obviously, the healthcare robotics engineering forum hones in on different types of robots for the healthcare industry. Uh, we talked about the keynotes earlier. We're going to have 120 plus exhibitors. There's going to be 50 conference sessions, 60, 70 speakers, plenty of chances to network with other leaders uh, who are developing commercial robotic systems and ability to learn uh, from them and learn from each other. We're going to have a career fair. We're going to have a form and function challenge where university teams from around the world are getting together to showcase some of the forms of new ideas for robots that they've come up with and what these robots can do. Uh, all sorts of things are going to be happening at the Robotics Summit and Expo in the Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum. Again, they are co-located in Boston, May 10th and 11th. Uh, you can learn about all that we're doing at roboticssummit.com. You can always reach out to me or Mike or Brianna or anybody on our team if you're looking to get involved from a sponsorship standpoint or from a speaker standpoint. We're hoping to have our agenda completely wrapped up here in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to get involved, uh, you got to kind of let us know quick. But we hope to see you all there. Uh, again, register at roboticssummit.com. Again, that's going to do it. Episode 103 of the Robot Report podcast. I'm not sure, Mike, we're going to get a chance to have an episode next week. We have our big company meeting next week in Cleveland. We're going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame one day, so which which should be fun. But if we're not back next week, we'll be back the week after that. Uh, you can find us, if you haven't already, on all the major podcast platforms. You guys get the idea anywhere you listen to your podcast. Please subscribe, leave us a rating, give us a review, tell some of your industry friends about us. We'd really appreciate that. And on behalf of Mike Oitzman and the entire Robot Report crew, my name is Steve Crow. Thanks so much, folks, for tuning in to the show. We'll talk to you again soon.